Hello and welcome to our next series on History Pop, where we talk about history, fictional, fictionalized, or otherwise. I'm your host, Courtney, and I am so very excited to talk with you over the next coming couple weeks about six. Now, for those of you who don't know, wow, you can actually, like, hear the airplanes and cars and stuff outside. That's super cool. But for those of you who uh, don't know, Six is a musical that is taking the world by storm. It started off in the UK, and I'll talk about that soon here in just a little bit, but it has a UK cast, a UK traveling cast, and a North American cast, and now an Australian cast. So that's really cool, and basically it's a musical version of telling the stories of the lives of Henry VIII's six wives. So what we're going to do today is just like we do for the first cast of any of the series that I've done so far is we're going to do a little bit of a historical prologue to tell you a bit about the actual lives of the women who are portrayed as characters in the six musical. Now before we get going don't get me wrong on this one I haven't seen it yet that's going to be happening tonight and by tonight I mean it's the opening night in St. Paul Minnesota I have been so buzzing with excitement for this over the last few months. Uh, I actually got my tickets the day that they were released for purchase, and I get to go opening night in the Golden Circle, which is apparently really good seats, so that's super exciting. Um, so the opinions that I'm going to be sharing in this cast are just based off of what I've talked with other people who have actually had the chance to see it, which is basically all of my friend group. Um, <laughs> well, my academic friend group, uh, which is, you know, a lot of people and a lot of opinions that they have about the show as well, and the research that I've done on it online, and also listening extensively to the soundtrack, which is catchy as hell. So, there are no spoilers in history, but there will be in this cast. So, Stay tuned, and we are going to be talking about six. Divorced. Beheaded. Died. Divorced. Beheaded. Survived. And tonight, we are... Hello and welcome back. I do... Like I said, the, the music is catchy AF, and I honestly am just so excited to get the chance to go to see the musical. So when putting this cast together, I did a lot of thinking about how I wanted to put it together, really. Like, how did we want to separate out the casts? And so today, yes, is going to be the introduction, the historical prelude to the analysis that we're going to be talking about when I actually do get to see the musical tonight. It's going to be great. Yeah. Uh, so next week, we are going to talk about the musical itself, uh, reactions, analyses, etc, etc, etc. So I can't really tell you much more until next week. <laughs> so yay! Anyway, 
So I was debating on how to organize this because I didn't know if I wanted to follow in the spirit of what Six was trying to do or what it still does. Um, because the main premise of it is being able to look at the lives and achievements of each of these women as individuals. Simply by the fact of it being called Six and the fact that we go through all the queens in succession, divorced, beheaded, and died, divorced, beheaded, survived, it still plays into those same tropes of the fact that the only reason that a lot of people know these women is because of the fact that they were all the wives of one man, King Henry VIII. And so I do appreciate what Six is trying to do and the fact that we do need to look at each of these women as individuals and then also as queens and how they exercise their agency or their power as queens is also important to look at. And so looking at six this way, I decided I was going to go with what it still ended up doing. And we're going to be putting all the women together, talking about them in succession. Because uh, also history makes sense. We need to do it chronologically in a lot of ways. And so that's kind of what we're going to be doing here. And I really do hope, and I know for a fact that in future casts, we're going to get the chance to look at these women and pop culture uh, works that are inspired by them separately. Um, although I do think one of the things that we're going to do at the end of this cast, as in this series of casts for six, is I think I'm going to have to talk about the Tudors. Yep. Anyway, so that's going to be fun. So... This musical was, uh, it's actually a fairly recently created musical, which makes a lot of sense. It was put together by two undergrads at Cambridge in the UK. Uh, basically, one is a history undergrad, one is an English undergrad, and they were studying for exams. And they decided that, you know, this is bullshit to borrow a term from the good place this is bullshit and how you know there's so much more to these women than just this one group biography that we were assigned to read in class and it's not fair to them to simply put them in context their lives their achievements their wants their desires in context of henry the eighth because they're fully-fledged people, too. And so they decided to write a musical. And these two undergrads, I do have their names up here, are Toby Marlowe and Lucy Moss. And I've listened to a lot of interviews, and basically they're like, yeah, we, we read this one book. You know, we've done so much research. We've read this book. <laughs> one book. On uh, the lives of the queens of Henry VIII, and we put together this musical. And it is interesting. You can definitely see some of the older trends in historiography or how the study of history has evolved over time in what is represented in these songs and in how these women are represented and so we'll definitely be talking about that uh but so they read this one book and they put together these songs they put together this musical and it ended up being a massive hit which hells yeah great job Toby and Lucy, uh, all the more power to you. And so it's an unusual musical in the fact that it's not, one, they know they're in a musical. It's the difference between like a musical theater sort of thing. Oh gosh, uh, Anna Kendrick actually was just talking about this uh, with Stephen Colbert, the difference between a musical and um, just like 
a movie like or like a Pitch Perfect because in Pitch Perfect she doesn't call it a musical because they know they're singing. In a musical, it's just part of the story. It's part of the characters. Like they don't realize they're singing and the music moves the narrative along in a way that's different than in movies like Pitch Perfect, which I thought was really fascinating. So this is the uh, former, not the latter. This is like Pitch Perfect where the women know they're singing. Uh, the whole thing is actually a concert. It is, uh, this music has also been described as Henry VIII's Six Wives meets Spice Girls, which accurate assessment. Uh, so they all are together somehow in this afterlife that contains a lot of music, and they're all arguing over who had it worst with Henry. Uh, and so then they all sing their songs to tell about basically how life with Henry sucked. And then they decide who had it the worst and then who gets to be the leader of their girl group. Um, and also what's really cool is the fact that the uh, backing band is an all-women backing band. And they are called the Ladies in Waiting, which is an anachronistic term dealing with this particular time period. But we'll go with it. It's cool. <laughs> and that's the whole thing here. There's a lot of liberties that they take with the history. They tried to make it as historically accurate as they could with the amount of research that they did. But there's stuff that's going to be seeping. And there's also just differences in interpretation as well. Um, so anyway, so we have the queens. They're all fighting over who had it worse with Henry. And they're all trying to win this concert. So they know that they're singing this isn't quite a musical. They actually do play it up like it is a concert environment. They take on the trope of the fact that they are all just Henry's ex-wives. Uh, one of the biggest things that they deal with is trying to become more than just one word in a stupid rhyme, which is the divorced, beheaded, and died, divorced, beheaded, survived. And so one of the things I'm going to be doing here in just a little bit is going to be going through the rhyme aka chronological order and talking a little bit about who each of these women were what were some of the important things that they did and just bits of their life and then in future casts we're going to be going through bits of their individual songs and how that represents them in a certain way that may or may not be borne out by historical record <coughs> anna of cleves um i love all right, so shall we get started talking about Catherine of Aragon? My name's Catherine of Aragon, was married 24 years. I'm a paragon of royalty. My loyalty is to the Vatican, so if you try to dump me, you won't try that again. Her name is Catherine of Aragon, married 24 years. She's a paragon of royalty. So... First off, little disclosure, I have been commissioned to write a short biography of Catherine of Aragon, so if I do get a bit too wordy and a little bit overexcited, please tell me, because she's my girl. I love her so much. Um, yeah, one of the things that some of the my colleagues in my grad program said that they would have, like, history BFFs and stuff like that, which I'm like, I don't. I don't get that. I don't ascribe to that. But there are figures who you, for some reason or other, are drawn to more than others. Just like you are in your day-to-day -day life. There are some people who you just click with and some people who you don't. And Catherine of Aragon 
is one of those who is just utterly fascinating to me because she more than so she's the first in the rhyme she is divorced although honestly she is i'm not gonna say she's more of a survivor than the other queens who are in the rhyme um but she is a survivor and that's one of the things that is ignored when you simply concentrate on her connections to Henry VIII. So Catherine of Aragon was born in Spain. Uh, she was the daughter of Isabel y Fernando, or Isabella and Ferdinand, as in the Isabella and Ferdinand of the Reconquista and the paying for Christopher Columbus's expedition to the New World in 1492 fame. Uh, she was born in 1485 and she died in 1536. She ended up being making it to 50, so good for her. Uh, one of the things that's actually really interesting to me is also the fact that she's not labeled survivor, yet she had the longest life out of all of Henry VIII's wives. Um, she was named for Catherine of Lancaster, who was her great-grandmother, uh, who was a queen of Castile. And Catherine of Lancaster is, is <laughs> was, history is past tense, Courtney, uh, the daughter of John of Gaunt. Now, John of Gaunt was a majorly rich dude. He was one of the sons of Edward III. Um... And John of Gaunt actually was the father of Henry IV. So Catherine Lancaster comes from a very noble stock. And uh, she was actually, so that means Catherine Lancaster is also sister to Henry IV. So she was queen uh, by her marriage uh, into Castile. Her sister Philippa was queen of Portugal by virtue of her marriage into Portugal. Um, and so we have, once again, this paragon of royalty, this idea for Catherine of Aragon. So she's descended not only from a long line of uh, the Trastamara dynasty in Castile and Aragon, but also the English royal house. Um, all but one of Henry VIII's wives were descended somehow from Edward III. Which, to be fair, if you go back far enough, everyone's related. Uh, but Edward III wasn't that far back. Her parents are Isabel y Fernando la Católica, who are the reconquista of the Muslim kingdom of Grenada in Spain. Super powerful. So when she says she's a paragon of royalty, she ain't lying. And one of the things that I have a little bit of a quibble about is the fact that they have Catherine saying that she was married for 24 years. So to start off with, Y'all may not know that Henry VIII was her second husband. Her first husband was his older brother, Arthur. Now, she and Arthur were actually about the same age. Uh, she was a few years older than Henry. And, but she and Arthur got along like a house on fire. They uh, were engaged, betrothed, uh, proxy-marriaged. Uh, various times throughout their childhood. I mean, she was raised uh, from at least the age of two as uh, de princesa, pre, princesa de Gales, or the Princess of Wales. She was always referred to as that, even when she, before she left Spain. And so she knew her destiny as far back as she could remember 
was she was going to she was the princess of wales and that meant she was going to be queen of england and so she marries arthur she uh travels from spain leaves her family behind and that's another thing too that i don't think is ever really talked about a lot uh in academic circles we do a lot of research on this but it's not really talked about in the popular biographies uh, of these women all of these princesses who marry into foreign houses is the fact that for a lot of them they never get to go home again they never get to see their family members again unless for some reason they're blown ashore like once luckily for Catherine uh, Juana her older sister was actually uh, shipwrecked on England's shores and even then she didn't even get to see her because of other mitigating political circumstances so these young women never get to go home again for the most part and that's a scary difficult thing if you think about it um so Catherine teenager packs up says goodbye to her mom goodbye to her dad and sets out for England all well not all by herself she had members of her household who came with her and that's another thing too as a foreign princess going to a new court depending on what your marriage agreement said and just the prevailing cultural attitudes at the new court that you're going to these people who come with you from your home get sent back and that can make it even more difficult for you to acclimate to your new surroundings because a lot of times you don't know the language, you don't know the customs, you don't know people there, and so you are all alone. And for Catherine, that didn't quite happen that way. So what happens for Catherine is her marriage to Arthur in 1501 was heavily celebrated. She was given a triumphal entry by herself into London, which is uh, basically they deck the streets out in all sorts of decorations. They have carts that are set up throughout the city itself with pageants that tell little plays about, uh, you know, trying to flatter the, the incoming uh, official or ambassador and also then to give them advice as well. And so Catherine was given one of these triumphal entries where it talks all about how, you know, she's virtuous, she's wonderful, she's smart, she is going to make a wonderful Queen of England someday. We really hope you have a lot of kids with Arthur. It's going to be great. And they're like 15 and 16. Um, and then once that was all said and done, she went to the church and she got married. And so she was celebrated when she first arrived. It was a fairy tale. Uh, the whole country as far as we can tell, based off of, you know, historical record, uh, letters, diaries, etc., etc., and just her reactions that she got from people throughout her life, the English people took to her right away. They loved her. She was exactly what they were hoping for in a new Princess of Wales and future queen. Uh, and not only that, she came from the most powerful family on the continent at the time, and so then that made England look really good because they managed to snag one of the children of Isabel and Fernando. And so she's welcomed with great celebration. Not too long after she and Arthur make their way out to Wales, they both get sick of the sweating sickness and he dies about six months into their marriage. She's 16, she's a widow, and she's stuck in a foreign country. And then 
mother dies, her stepmother, not stepmother, her mother-in-law dies, and so she doesn't have any of these strong female guiding forces for her to show her what to do, how to maintain the perception of her virtue in this foreign country where she doesn't know a whole lot of people. She doesn't really have a whole lot of standing, especially after her mother dies, because her mother was the regnant queen of Castile. So when she married Arthur, she was the daughter of the queen of Castile. But now she was the sister of the queen of Castile, which is a little bit of a lower value in terms of the marriage market. And she's caught between her father and her former father-in-law, Fernando, and then Henry VII, on what to do about her dowry, because Fernando hadn't paid it all, and Henry didn't want to give back what they'd already gotten, so he wanted to hold on to her, so that way that would kind of be a, a way of securing the fact that Fernando was going to eventually pay the rest of the dowry. Now, oh, I should probably explain what a dowry is. Basically, at this particular point in time, and for a long time before that, and a long time after that, women were seen as burdens. Uh, to their families, uh, at least legally. Um, and so one of the ways that you kind of brokered agreements between uh, families for marriages was if you were marrying off a daughter, you basically paid another family to take her. You gave them lots of money or something at least that was that was comparative to her social standing. And so as a very powerful princess, there was a large dowry involved that Isabel and Ferdinand would have to give to Henry VII to say, yes, please take our daughter. Yeah, anyway, so that uh, led to a major disagreement, but they you know, did their best to diplomatically smooth it over between Henry VII and Ferdinand, because neither one of them wanted to give up the money uh, or to take care of Catherine, so she was left basically on her own to stay in England because she didn't have permission to go back to Spain. And so she survived how she could. She couldn't pay a lot of her servants, so she had to let them go and hopefully get married or find their own employment in England or go back to Spain. She had to sell off parts of the dowry that she did get to hold on to. Uh, so like her uh, plate uh, or jewelry. And so she had to sell that off to be able just to pay rent and so she lived that way for years. She would send, there are letters upon letters to her father where she talks about how, you know, yes, my great and glorious and wonderful dad, please send money. I don't have any new dresses, so I can't go to court because if you go to court, you have to look good. Please let me go to court. That'd be great. Um, so I can actually like do something about my standing here. Uh, and then eventually uh, Ferdinand realizes that one, Catherine's really smart two, she's really determined, three, she's really clever. And so he actually appoints her as his ambassador to England. I mean, who better to, that, to trust your interests in than your own daughter? Because you both want the same thing. You want to have a new marriage brokered. And for a while, there were rumors that after Elizabeth of York died, Henry VII was planning on marrying Catherine himself. Um, and much to the dismay of, this was before her mother died, and so Isabel was like, ha ha ha, no, that is not happening. I will come back and get my daughter from you in person before that happens. She didn't actually write that, but honestly, I can see her doing that. <laughs> so there were rumors that he was going to marry Catherine himself, uh, but the most likely candidate for marriage then was Arthur's little brother, 
who would eventually grow up to be Henry VIII. And Catherine made it work. Um, as much as uh, Henry VII went back and forth and back and forth, was saying, yeah, sure, little Henry, little Harry can marry you someday. Or, no, he's not going to, for sure. Oh, yeah, sure, he's going to. No, he's not. And he went to his deathbed basically saying, no, he's not going to marry you. And one of the first things that Henry did becoming after becoming king, besides, you know, executing a couple of his dad's taxmen, was to marry Catherine. Now, that's actually one of the things that you notice as you look at his relations with the rest of his wives, is that Henry likes to know his wives before he marries them. Which, from a modern standpoint, we're like, yeah, duh, that, that makes a lot of sense. And so, you know, he knew Catherine of Aragon for years, because, you know, eventually she did become a figure at court again, and... Uh, that triumphal entry that I told you about before in 1501 where she entranced the uh, people of London and the people of England and how they all completely fell in love with her. She did so with little Henry by her side. He was 10 years old at the time and he got to accompany her through London and got to see her interact with her new people. And I mean, I don't know if he fell in love with her then. That would be, you know, a childhood crush, but you never know. But he got to know her from when he was 10 years old. And so that says a lot. He knew Anne Boleyn before he married her. He knew Jane Seymour before he married her. He knew Catherine Howard before he married her. Not as long, but he knew her. And he knew Catherine Parr before he married her. The only other wife, the only wife that he didn't know before he wed was Anne of Cleves. And we'll see what happened with that in a little bit. So he marries her right off the bat. They have a joint coronation, which is incredibly important. Now, a coronation is the ceremony in which a sovereign is crowned. And basically, it's when they also get an anointment, so they are divinely ordained. Uh, usually in England, it's the Archbishop of Canterbury, since he's like the biggie in terms of the, you know, the highest of the high in, in the uh, land for religious men. And they're anointed, they're crowned, and so then, even though technically he's the king before this, as soon as the moment the other king dies, having this ceremony gives him legitimacy, even more so than he had before. And he does this, and what's interesting is that he is in a joint coronation. So Catherine also had a coronation. So she gets to have this, and so then everything is great again. And everything, honestly, was pretty great for them uh, for several years. Catherine was trained from her earliest days in being a queen. She knew how to make the gears of government work for her and for Henry. She knew how to run a household. She knew that she needed to try to have children. She knew how to play the diplomatic and political games. She also sewed his shirts. And this was actually a very intimate thing uh, because the undershirt, of course, your shirt is the th uh, piece of cloth that's closest to your body. And so usually a wife would sew her husband's shirts. And Catherine was exceedingly skilled as a seamstress and she would embroider the shirts and make them beautiful. And actually she continued to make his shirts even after he got together with Anne Boleyn. <laughs> um Maybe she just did a really good job and she knew exactly what he liked. And, I mean, they also had heartbreak as well. Um, she was pregnant 
so many times. Uh, yeah, we don't know exactly how many times she was pregnant over the course of their marriage, uh, but she um, was pregnant almost immediately after their uh, marriage, and she had a stillborn girl the next year, and actually they, uh, the doctor thought that she might have twins, and she only miscarried one of them, and so she was still pregnant. Uh, that was a medical understanding at the time, but she wasn't. She miscarried. Uh, and then um, she actually did give birth to a son who lived long enough to have his baptism, and he was named Henry after his dad. He was born on January 1st, so even better. And they had great uh, jousts in his honor and to celebrate the birth of the heir, especially so soon. I mean, it's, you know, a year, less than a year after the coronation. And so everybody was happy. There were bonfires. And then he died after a couple months, which was really sad. Um, and then Catherine gets married again. Uh, not married. Uh, pregnant again and has a stillborn child. She gets pregnant again in uh, 1514 and has another stillborn child. She gets pregnant again in 1515 and gives birth in 1516 to the only child of hers who would survive uh, to adulthood, her daughter Mary. And then in 1517, she has another miscarriage. In 1518, uh, she gets pregnant again, and then the child is born and is alive, but dies shortly thereafter birth. And so she and Henry had a lot of heartache when it came to their children. And, and one of the things, too, that Catherine talks about in her song, In No Way, is uh, that she never lost her cool. And I'll probably do another analysis of this later on. But... Uh, that's not exactly true. Uh, so after her daughter Mary was born and they realized that there weren't going to be any children to survive to follow Mary, uh, you know, she poured her heart and soul into, you know, giving this child love and everything she was going to need to be England's queen. Because Catherine knew from the get-go that Mary was going to be England's queen. And she worked on educating her and training her for that role, much like her mom trained her to be a consort queen. And there are differences between consorts and regnants, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. I've already talked a little bit about in the Victoria podcasts. Um, but she knew that Mary was going to be England's first regnant queen. Well, depending on if you talk about Matilda or not, centuries previous. But anyway, the first undisputed queen regnant. And so... She poured her heart and soul into Mary, and Mary was one of, if not the major joy of her life from that point on. But speaking about losing her cool, one of the things that was expected, if not accepted, of men in positions of power was that they would have extramarital affairs. Powerful men were supposed to have mistresses. That's just what you did. And, you know, of course, a woman couldn't take a mister because that would just upset the balance and you don't know who that baby's daddy is and then inheritance things happen, so you gotta keep your women locked up. Ugh. But, so men would totes sleep around and didn't see how this was, you know, a hypocrisy in their behavior at all. And Henry, of course, 
did that, which is one of the reasons why he ends up with so many wives. But he had a mistress by the name of Bessie Blunt, and Bessie Blunt was a beautiful, vivacious lady who actually ended up giving birth to Henry's uh, first living son, also named Henry, and he was the ended up becoming the Duke of Richmond. Now, Catherine's one public freakout was dealing with the fact that you know her daughter was the heir presumptive to the throne. Basically, and well, actually, to her, uh, Mary would have been the heir assumptive. Basically, saying that you know because she knew she wasn't going to be having any more kids, there wasn't going to be any other further heirs for Henry. So Mary was it. Mary was going to be the next in line to be queen. Henry, though, by giving his boy child many titles and lots of lands and lots of money possibly made it look like he was grooming the young boy to become his heir rather than marry. And this was the only time that Catherine broke her composure in public and basically just left a party early, which, and then yelled at Henry afterward. But that's the only time, and that's how she did it. So she has and had a will of steel. Or adamantium. I like adamantium, too. <laughs> and so we have all of that going on. And in the midst of this, uh, you know, Catherine shows how she is an intelligent and honestly fierce woman. Uh, we have Battle of Flodden Field in 1513 when Henry decides, I want to go off and fight in France. Because... He wanted to have a battle to fight and prove he was a manly man. And so he went to France and he fought in uh, Tournai and, you know, he actually won a couple of battles. But while he was gone, the Scottish were like, oh, yes. So we see what's going on here. Let's see if I can get a Scottish accent. There we go. Yeah, that's more of a Scot. So we see that the king is gone, which means y'all are not defended. So we're going to invade from the north with our armies and we're going to take over England. It's going to be great. Except Catherine was like, ha ha ha, no. And she mustered armies and she didn't personally lead the troops. There's actually some legends that talk about how she donned a suit of armor and gave speeches to her troops and they rushed into battle and won because of that, much like Elizabeth later on with the Battle of Tilbury. But regardless, though, she knew what she was doing and she knew how to delegate and so she picked good men to lead the troops to go and fight uh, James IV, uh, who was invading at that particular point in time, and he was utterly defeated. The king himself was actually killed in this battle. And so, you know, Catherine is, this. there's this beautiful letter that survives, and you can actually see scans of it and translations, not translations, because it is in English, but uh, it's in secretary hand, which is really hard to read. But you can actually read transliterations of it and basically she says about how you know you had such great battles good job in france but you know what uh here's this king that i had killed and now of course our englishman's hearts were too weak for me to actually send you his body but here's his bloody coat so you can use your you can use it in one of your banners <laughs> she's fierce so she has proven time and again that she is a great queen 
And actually, while Henry had left to go fight in France, not only did she win the Battle of Flodden Field, you know, with her delegation and all of the troops and all of the men, she was made regent. And what that means is that she was in charge of the country with basically the same powers as Henry until Henry came back. He trusted her that much. And also, too, she, you know, comes from a long line of, or at least, you know, her mom, of women who knew how to fight battles even if they didn't fight in them themselves. They knew how to use the military in a way that was efficacious. So Catherine proved herself over and over and over again to be a survivor, to be clever, to be intelligent, to be able to play the political game honestly better than Henry. Uh, Because not only did she do all of these things, she did them while appearing to be the perfect wife, which is, of course, meek, humble, uh, deferential to her husband. So she did all of these things while making it look like she wasn't really the one who should get all the credit for it. It's, it's totally Henry. I mean, like, you know, yes, he chose me to do this, but I was only doing it because, you know, he told me to, and I want to be a good wife. And, you know, I really, you know, it's all, it's all Henry. <laughs> but then in the 1520s, and no one is exactly sure when, we have a new woman enter the picture. Now, Henry, like I said before, you with Bessie Blunt, he had had his eyes wander before. Uh, he had, had also had an affair with a young woman named Mary Boleyn, who was Anne Boleyn's sister. Now, we don't know for sure if Mary Boleyn is the older or the younger sister, but so he has affairs with lots of women. And he has some children by them. And actually, uh, there are some historians who think that a couple of Mary Boleyn's kids uh, were fathered by Henry. Which is another reason why, honestly, Anne probably said no <laughs> initially. Um, but so another woman entered the picture, and she captivated Henry uh, with her beauty and her grace. And I will talk more about this once we get to her section. But it's kind of hard not to put these two together because they do overlap and have a lot of interactions between the two of them. And Anne Boleyn was intelligent. She was feisty. She was vivacious, but she wasn't as politically astute as Catherine. And that's where we get the sorry, not sorry, and how she kind of runs her mouth a bit and doesn't know when to stop. And she captivated Henry from the beginning, especially because she told him no. Anne was one of the first people, at least since he became king, who told him no. And now, and I'll talk about this in a little bit, but I genuinely think she was saying no. (laughs) So Anne Boleyn enters the picture and is the other woman in this marriage, and Henry decides that, well, you know, uh, Leviticus, in one of the books in the Bible, says that if you wed your brother's wife after he dies, then you will be childless. Now, of course, he had Mary, and he had lots of stillborn and miscarried children with Catherine before, but they didn't count because they didn't have a penis. Let that sink in. Anyway, I have issues with Henry. 
so he got it in his own head and also uh, and feeding him uh, different uh, religious tracts and things like that that made him think that he should be the head of the church because, you know, he's a powerful king. He's big and strong. He should be in charge of the church and not cow down to cow down to the to the pope because, you know, he's in charge and all of our money's going there too. Don't you want to keep the money here and the power here? And so Henry, uh, for that and other reasons as well, uh, became, he broke off from the church of uh, Rome and started his own branch in the Church of England where he was the head of the church and then he let his churchman uh, Archbishop Cranmer uh, to declare the fact that his marriage to Catherine was null and void and that he could marry Anne and be totally fine and so at that point that was 1533 and that's where we get the 24 years of Catherine's marriage. She was married 24 years. I'm a paragon. Um, and so that's my little nitpicky thing with that number is the fact that if we're actually talking about things from Catherine's point of view, she would maintain for the rest of her life, which was only another three years, that she was Henry's wife and that they were legally wed and that he was in a bigamous relationship with Anne Boleyn. So... It should be 27 years, but that doesn't flow as well. Was married 27 years, I'm a paragon of royalty. Um, but anyway, so in Henry's mind, they were divorced in 1533. After that became another excessively difficult period in Catherine's life because she was exiled. She had been exiled from court. She was not allowed then to see Henry uh, to see her daughter. Uh, Mary had desperately been trying to be able to go and be with her mother, especially at her mother's deathbed, but Henry was like, haha, no, your mother's infecting you with all of her Catholic ideas and the fact that, you know, she's not doing what I want her to do. And so Catherine died without getting to see her daughter Mary ever again, which was a big regret for her. But she, I do think that she was proud of Mary because Mary did stand fast against her father for as long as she really could. Because one of the things that Henry wanted her to do was sign this document that basically said, yeah, no, uh, Henry is the head of the church and um, his marriage to Anne Boleyn is totes valid and Catherine not. She, she's the Princess of Wales. She's not the Queen of England. Which would then, of course, make Mary a bastard because if Henry and Catherine were never married then Mary was born out of wedlock. And there was no way that Mary or Catherine was happy with that. And so Mary refused to sign that for a very long time. And actually it was that oath of supremacy, that thing that Henry wanted people to sign, was one of the things that got Sir Thomas More executed was because he refused to sign that. Because he's like, yeah, no, that, that's not how that works. The Pope is the head of the church. And no, your, your marriage to Catherine is valid, not your marriage to Anne. So that, of course, pissed off Henry. And he did uh, something that he would continue to do is have the heads taken off of his most able ministers. And then basically immediately regret it when things go to shit for a while. <laughs> 
And also, there's a lot of people who are like, well, why didn't he have Catherine executed? There was no way he could have Catherine executed. That's one of the benefits of being a foreign-born princess, is the fact that you have connections outside of the country. Um, because while Isabel and Ferdinand had been long dead at this point in time, she still was supported by other members of her family, especially her nephew, who was uh, Carlos, Carlos V, um, Charles V. Uh, he was the Holy Roman Emperor. And not only was he the Holy Roman Emperor, so he's in charge of, you know, running all of these German provinces. He inherited Burgundy. He inherited the kingdoms of Spain from his mom and uh from Ferdinand and his dad and all of these things so he had holdings all over the world and lots of sources of income and so at that particular point in time in the mid 1530s Charles V is the most powerful man known in the western world now of course he also had holdings across the ocean in South America too so yeah you don't want to mess with him and he's Catherine's nephew so there was no possible way that Henry would have ever tried to have Catherine executed. So at least she was saved from that. Uh, she died in exile after an illness and uh, at Kimbolton Castle in early January of 1536. And she was lucky enough to have people who are loyal to her uh, at her bedside when she died. Uh, Maria de Salinas. Uh, who was one of the women who actually came over with her from Spain, managed to sneak her way or bluster her way into Kimbolton Castle against Henry's orders. And she's like, oh no, my, my cart broke wheel. My horse threw me away back. Oh, you're not gonna, you're gonna, you're not gonna let me stay outside here in the cold in January in the snow. That would just be cruel. And so she blustered her way into Kimbolton Castle and stayed by Catherine's side. So at least she wasn't alone when she died. And it was said, actually, that after they did an autopsy, her heart was black. Now, medical experts now say that that's probably the symptom of cancer. But at the time, it was understood that people thought maybe she was poisoned. And, of course, the most obvious uh, culprit would, would most likely have been Anne Boleyn, which that's not true. Anne Boleyn did not have Catherine poisoned, regardless of what Pedro Calderón de la Barca in La Cisma de Inglaterra tells you. And I love that play, and we should definitely talk about it at some point in time. <sighs> So anyway, that is the end of Catherine's life. So onward to the woman who supplanted her, Anna Bolena. I'm that Boleyn girl and I'm up next. See, I broke England from the church. Yeah, I'm that sexy. Why did I lose my head? Well, my sleeves may be green, but my lipstick's red. So we got divorced. Next up is beheaded. The first of the beheadeds, and actually they were both cousins, uh, was Anne Boleyn. Anne Boleyn, we're not exactly sure when she was born. Uh, there's a couple of dates that historians put out, uh, either 1501 or 1507. I've also seen 1509. So there's a lot of discrepancy. And that's honestly because of the fact that, you know, kind of like what I talked about with Catherine Aragon is that you had to pay someone to take a girl child off of your hands when you were marrying her off with a dowry. Women, uh, girls, they weren't seen as as worthy of attention as as boys or men. 
And so they weren't as important at the time, especially. And so especially in non-royal or aristocratic families, you generally don't have birth dates recorded for girls. And sometimes you do for boys. But uh, as we go further up the social hierarchy, you're much more likely to have boys' birth years and dates specifically as uh, recorded. And actually one of the things that is interesting too is that we know exactly when Catherine of Aragon's birthday was because she was seen as important as being the daughter of Isabel and Ferdinand. She was their baby, as in the youngest as well. Um, but Anne Boleyn, though, we don't know her exact birthday or even her birth year. Um, and I, and uh, as I talked a little bit too, uh, Mary was also her future husband's mistress. And so we don't have her birthday either. We don't know which one of them was older. And so that is something that makes doing this particular era of history difficult when you don't even know how old these figures that you're studying are because knowing their age kind of changes a bit about how you interpret what it is they're doing just like it, you know if you have a see a two-year-old having a uh, temper tantrum that's very different than a 22 year old having a temper tantrum so knowing when Anne's actual birth year or even birthday that'd be great were would be helpful in understanding more just about her and her life and her experiences now i generally ascribe to the earlier dates for her birthdays the 1501-ish uh time frame kirka 1501 because of the fact that she you know was sent off to foreign courts to learn how to do all of the feminine skills needed to be able to snag a husband. Um, and also she received an exemplary education while she was there. Um, but we do have extant letters from her, which we know we can date the letter. And it makes much more sense that she would have been like 12 or 13 writing the letter rather than like six. So I'm more inclined for the 1501 date. So we're just going to go with 1501 for this, even though anyone who says that they know for absolute sure, they're lying. There, There's no documentation that actually talks about exactly when Anne Boleyn was born or whether or not she was the older or the younger sister between herself and Mary. But what we do know is that uh, her dad was Thomas Boleyn and his and her mom was lady elizabeth howard now the howards were an incredibly old and powerful family in england and so she certainly wasn't a commoner like some people will have you believe definitely not she was descended of dukes which is kind of a thing and yeah, if you look at her uh, paternal side of the family, on her dad's side of the family, you have like a Lord Mayor of London and then all of these men who actually did work. But to be able to be Lord Mayor of London, you had to be really wealthy because you weren't paid for the position and you paid out a whole ton of money for other people to do things for you while you were in that position. It was very honorary, um, but uh, it cost a lot of money to be able to do it. So even though on her dad's side she has more of the uh, merchanty stock, her mom's side is straight up old school English nobility. So very much not a commoner. 
Um, and honestly, there was no way that Henry VIII would ever have married a commoner. Uh, that would have been so far beneath him. Ugh. Um, but he was, he would have been totally okay, um, you know, having sex with them. But anyway, so Anne Boleyn, not a commoner. We don't know exactly when she was born, but around 1526-ish or so, after she made her debut at court, Henry cast his eye upon her. And initially, you know, he, he's like, you know, you should sleep with me. And she's like, haha, no, um, I have my virtue to maintain. I am a virgin and I need to maintain that virginity for my marriage. And he's like, you should be my mistress, though. It's totally fine. I'm the king, and I'll make sure that you marry off well, just like I did with your sister. See, your sister married pretty well, and, you know, she had a generally happy-ish existence with her husband, as far as I know. I haven't done a whole lot of research on Mary Boleyn, to be honest. Um, but generally, she did fine for herself. She had an existence that was taken care of, and she had children who she loved. So Henry's like, yeah, no, um, I'll just take care of you like I did your sister. It'll be totally fine. I'll never put you away. You can be my official mistress, just like they have in France. The uh, mistress en tetra, which is, you know, the titled mistress. And so the official mistress. And so the kings in France had official mistresses that they, um, you know, it was an actual position. You know, much like uh, the later um, mistress that we have, like Madame de Pompadour, uh, Renette Poisson. And so we have these women who have these actual legit positions. They get apartments at court. They're well taken care of, at least for a time. And then they're married off. And so Henry was like, well, you basically grew up in France. Because uh, first she was sent to Burgundy. And she learned a whole lot there. And then she went to France. And she stayed at the court there. And uh, when she finally came back to England, uh, 1522, came straight to the UK, all the British dudes like epic fail. She came back to England and she was seen as exotic because she spoke better French than a French woman born, quote unquote. Um, she had brought all the French fashions with her and she was young. She wasn't actually a traditionally beautiful woman, but her attitudes and her personality were sparkling. She had a, a sharp wit. Uh, she had captivating eyes and her neck. She also was one of her best features. Um, and so she caught the eye of not just Henry, but, um, well, King Henry, but, you know, other men at court as well. And Henry said that he wanted to have her as his mistress and she said no. And like I said before, with talking about Catherine, this was one of the first times in a very long time that someone had told Henry no. And instead of him giving up, he did the opposite. He kept going. And I'm honestly of the opinion that she saw what happened to her sister and didn't want that to happen to her. And so she said no, and I think she actually meant it. And it took a while for Henry to be like, okay, fine, tell you what. I will divorce my wife and I will marry you. Just like so many adulterous men tell their mistresses. I will leave my wife for you. And of course, he actually meant it. Uh, because Anne was so much younger, if we're going with the 1501 date, 16 years younger than Catherine. And much more likely to be able to give him sons. Uh, more, much more of a procreative period left in her life. But I do genuinely think that she just 
didn't want Henry to start off with. And then once he made it clear that she was going to be queen, how could she say no to that, especially with her father being such an ambitious man at court? Um, This was an opportunity for the family, especially, to become much more powerful. And so they took it. And it wasn't until they thought that they actually were able to secure an annulment that she finally slept with him. And, you know, he presented her as his queen uh, when they went to France. And so that's, that's, that's one of the things that I think is actually fairly accurate about her song. You know, like, what was I meant to do? What was I meant to do? Things just didn't go the way that I think that she expected them to. Because she was too smart to give in to Henry, especially after seeing what happened with her sister. And... I do think that she wasn't the party girl that the song and Six make her out to be in that way, at least. Uh, you know, politics, not my thing. Yes, 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 they were. Religion and politics were totes her thing. You know, she, she, she loved playing the political game, and she actually, you know, not as good as Catherine at it, but not that bad. I mean, she was the one who was bringing in these censured pamphlets that were banned in England uh, because of their, uh, about the new uh, Lutheran brand of faith. And it was that in those tracts, those pamphlets that convinced Henry that he could be the head of the church. And not only should he be head of the church, he should have all of the powers, prerogatives, and monies that come from it. And so... It was partly directly based because on what Anne Boleyn uh, shared with Henry and showed him of her religious understandings. Now, there are some argument back and forth with historians about, you know, just how religious she was. And I'm of the opinion that she actually did have genuine religious beliefs. I would not call her a Lutheran. Um, but I do think that she genuinely wanted to reform the church. And both she and Catherine would have agreed that the Catholic Church needed reforming. But with the drastic overhaul in terms of, like, you know, how the Eucharist is understood um, and the use of images and uh, other things like that in the Catholic Church, that's where they would have differed in their idea of Reformation. But there's no way you can call Anne Boleyn a Lutheran, but you can definitely call her a reformer. She was uh, a hot Protestant, which basically, you know, she had opinions under the, and she was, you know, on fire. Um, so there's some disagreement about where these beliefs come from, and I am also of the opinion, uh, and there, there are some linkages that you can make between um, Anne Boleyn and Marguerite de Navarre, who was the sister of Francis I of France. And Marguerite de Navarre was Queen of Navarre, and um, she was also a major reformer in the French version of the Catholic Church. She housed these new reformers. She had a salon where she would have people come and debate things. She was part of this circle of letters and all of these men and women who would you know, write to her or come to her and have these debates and talk about how the church could and should be, you know, made better and the corruptions in it purged. And so with the fact that Anne Boleyn was part of that French court for a while, 
it makes sense that she would have come into contact, if not with Marguerite de Navarre, then with her ideas and the people who were important to that movement. And so I think that Anne's particular brand of uh, reformist beliefs does come from her time in France and from contact with either Marguerite de Navarre herself or the circles surrounding Marguerite de Navarre. And I do think that Anne's religious convictions were genuine. And we can definitely see that uh, with her, with the disagreement that actually, you know, caused her downfall. But first things first. So uh, she ends up marrying Henry in 1533. And this is, of course, after the Church of England decides that his marriage to Catherine is no longer valid. And so that it never happened, because that's what an annulment means, is that, oh yeah, the marriage was totes screwed to begin with, so it never happened. We're just going to wreck on that. Uh, and divorce and annulment meant the same thing at the time. So if you see it as divorce, it means that the marriage never happened. If you see it as annulment, it means that the marriage never happened. Um, divorce, as in where we understand it today, where the marriage obviously did happen, um, and then you just treat it as an ending of that, was not how that worked because uh, marriage was one of the seven sacraments. And so it's something that is ordained by God. And, you know, you cannot separate man and wife and, you know, until death do us part in general. I mean, there's, of course, you know, exceptions to every rule. But in general, you cannot separate uh, what God has put together. And so that's why you have to have it annulled rather than divorce in our modern understanding of the word divorce. So the marriage, totes never happened, at least in Henry's head. Catherine, like I said, maintained that she was his wife until the end of her life. But for Henry, nope, never happened. Uh, Mary, you're a bastard now. I'm totally married to Anne, who is my first and only legitimate wife, which was helpful because she was already pregnant. And then uh, she gets a coronation, a solo coronation, uh, in which Henry pulls out all the stops. And there's actually a lot of really good documentation still around it, which is really cool. And I need to do more research on that. But right now I'm actually looking at the triumphal entries and coronations of foreign-born consorts. So I've done Catherine, and I've got a few more on the way in my dissertation. But yes, so she has her coronation, and she is visibly pregnant which is actually unusual because one of the things that happens during a coronation, especially and when you're paraded around the streets of London, is as a queen, you're coming in and you have your hair down and you're wearing a gown of white. Both of these signify purity. Both of these signify virginity. And... Anne was obviously not a virgin at this point in time, but you still play with it like she is. It's fine. She's totes pure. Um, and actually, they, uh, she and Henry were so sure that this child was going to be a boy that they had the birth announcements already uh, written up so they could just be sent out once the kid was born. And it said, you know, the birth of the prince. And then they had to hastily add an S on the end, so princess. Instead of that, she was actually pregnant with the future Queen Elizabeth. And I wonder if I'll actually get the chance to talk about Elizabeth in the future. I hope I do. Because uh, I have things to say about Elizabeth. 
But anyway, um, so she does her best to guide Henry in terms of religion and also then to give him a son, which was because one of the things that, you know, Catherine was not able to do. Um, she did not treat Mary well. She did not treat Catherine well at all, because both of them refused to acknowledge that she was the rightful queen of England. And, uh... Yeah, she would frequently call Mary a bastard and be horrible to her. And actually, after Elizabeth was born, they had Mary placed into Elizabeth's household as her servant. You know, just to rub salt in the wound. So poor Mary, who had been invested as, after the whole debacle, with um, her half-brother, uh, Henry Bessie Blunt's son, the Duke of Richmond, Catherine raised enough of a stink with Henry that Henry uh, publicly made uh, proclamations and had Mary invested as the Princess of Wales. So then she was the heir presumptive because the Prince or Princess of Wales is the heir to the throne and everyone acknowledges it. And so she actually, at nine years old, was sent out to Wales to govern it. So Mary goes from this uh, to having a glittering and wonderful life at court where her dad adores her and she, you know, might marry her cousin, Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. Eventually, she actually marries his son. Uh, but so things are going great for Mary. And then Anne Poland comes in. And so, yeah, after Elizabeth is born, Mary is put as a servant in Elizabeth's household. And everyone's calling Elizabeth princess. And Mary is just the Lady Mary. So that's a slap in the face. And then there's all this all new religion -y stuff, and she's refusing to sign the fact that, you know, the Oath of Supremacy, that Dad is now the head of the church, basically the same as the Pope. So yeah, things are not great for Mary at this point in time, but things are wonderful for Anne and Elizabeth. But honestly, it doesn't take too long for Henry to tire of Anne. All of the things that made her great as a mistress made her difficult for him as a wife. Uh, she, you know, was feisty. She didn't know how to stop. She fought back. He became very tired of dealing with her. And the fact that, you know, just like Catherine, she had a stillborn child. And depending on which historian you read, uh, that child, you know, was a misshapen lump of a monster. Which is totally not true, and actually Catholic propaganda from uh, Nicholas Sander later on in the century. But yeah, eventually Anne miscarried of her savior, is one of the things I said. And um, eventually, of course, uh, Catherine of Aragon dies in early 1536. Now, originally, Catherine and not Catherine, Anne and Henry were super excited about it. Uh, they're like, finally, ding dong, the witch is dead. And they wore yellow to celebrate the fact that she was finally dead. And of course, Mary's devastated. But, um, you know, that actually did draw some scandal. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm just looking at the Wikipedia, you know, just to kind of go through chronologically for Anne's life and tell you all the things that I remember from my own readings. And I love this because this is so freaking wrong. Yes, on January 8th, 1536, news of Catherine of Aragon's death reached the king and Anne, who were overjoyed. The following day, Henry and Anne wore yellow, the symbol of joy and celebration in England from head to toe, and celebrated Catherine's death with festivities. In Spain, the home country of Catherine of Aragon, which actually technically Spain wasn't really a thing because it was a bunch of different kingdoms, it was, you know, 
the Iberian Peninsula, <laughs> but it wasn't, you know, just Spain. But anyway, uh, the home country of Catherine Aragon, yellow was the color of mourning in addition to black. No, 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 it wasn't. It was not the color of mourning in Spain. They were being jerks about the fact that Catherine had just died. They were being insensitive and they were not following proper mourning procedure. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so then, so then just before the end of that month, then Anne miscarried of, like I said before, her savior. She'd had a miscarriage before that as well. Um, but at the end of January 1536, she miscarried of what is possibly would have been the fetus of a boy that would have eventually become a boy. At the time, though, you know, everyone says, not everyone, but a lot of popular biographers will say that this was the beginning of the end for Anne Boleyn. No, it wasn't. Um, actually, Henry comforted her and was like, okay, well, you know what? Now, any child we have is going to be born without the possible stain of illegitimacy because Catherine is gone. And, and so they were comforted by that. You know, obviously they were sad about the child that wasn't born, but they were looking forward to the future. And... Uh, she gets pregnant again, actually, after that, and then life is great. But, like I said, Henry had been kind of tiring her, of her, and he his eyes started wandering again, and they fell upon a woman who had been appointed to her household, just like Anne had been appointed to Catherine's. And then we'll get to talk about Jane Seymour. Um, but anyway, so then Anne miscarried again, and... Some historians will say, well, that was the final nail in the coffin, which honestly, I don't really think it was. I think that Anne's downfall is a lot more to do with the political machinations and the shifting of factions at court rather than Henry not being able to sire a son. Now, of course, a son is super important, and he was probably getting really frustrated. He's like, why am I only having daughters? This is not cool. I think that the incident that set off Henry was the fact that Anne opposed Thomas Cromwell on what to do with the funds in the dissolution of the monasteries. Now, one of the things that Henry did after the Oath of Supremacy, breaking from the Catholic Church, etc., etc., was he you know, took the English church, all of the churches and cathedrals and everything like that, uh, they were technically under him. And if they were monasteries, he's like, no, screw this. You guys have a lot of wealth tied up in all of the artifacts and gold and other things that you have uh, in your possession. So I'm just going to liquidate y'all and you can figure out what you're going to do. But if you're not going to be Catholic, then you, I'm sorry, if you're not going to be my particular brand of Protestant, which it's not the Anglican Church yet. That's a very distinctive brand of liturgy that comes later, and I would argue that that's actually under Elizabeth. But if you're not going to be my particular brand of Reformed faith, then I'm going to liquidate you. And so that's what he does. And there's a lot of money then that flows towards the crown coffers at that particular point in time. And and this is another reason why I think that she had more genuine religious beliefs. And I think that she, in a lot of ways, except for her relationship, you know, like with Catherine and Mary, um, was genuinely trying to do good because she wanted to send that money to charitable works. 
fund schools and hospitals and things like that with it. Whereas Thomas Cromwell was like, ha ha ha, no, it's coming to the king, hashtag me, but mostly the king. And so once that happened, even though Thomas Cromwell had been one of her biggest supporters, um, he worked for her downfall, and that happened very quickly. Um, you know, the king had been getting to be annoyed with her and tired of her, and so once rumors came about that, you know, maybe she's sleeping around. You know, maybe that's why she's miscarrying. Maybe that uh, she is sleeping around with one, no, two, no, three, five people at court. One of them's her brother. And so she has, and uh, there was also an incident where she basically said, and actually it does come up in her song too, maybe I wouldn't be such a bitch if you could get it up. Um, she basically did kind of vent to uh, some courtiers about how Henry had a hard time getting it up. And so, yeah, <laughs> uh, that got around to him and that definitely hurt him in his manly little manhood. And so I think that, along with Cromwell finding a way to construct these charges against her, was the biggest thing that led to her downfall. And so we have, honestly, a trial that comes up. They uh, torture one of the men she supposedly slept with, Mark Smeaton, who was a musician at court. All the rest were noble, so you can't torture noble people. Um, but they do interrogate them, and uh, they have all of these trials, and one of them actually I do think was actually released and was able to be like, dude, I have witnesses and documentation that show I was not there when you say that I was sleeping with Anne, and they let him go. But the other ones were all executed, especially uh, even her brother. And um, so they were all kept in the Tower of London and then executed on Tower Green. And Anne, actually, her window overlooked the scaffold, so she actually could have seen her brother get executed. And she loved her brother. She was devoted to her brother. They were two peas of a pod, um, which was one of the reasons why people were able to come up with the story that, of course, she's sleeping with her brother. Did you know that they're, like, super close? Yeah, they're totally sleeping with each other. Um, a lot of people also say that Anne was uh, accused of witchcraft, which at that particular point in time, she wasn't. If she had had this you know, extra nail on her finger or a sixth figure or a wen underneath her chin, you know, like a big mole under her chin, Henry wouldn't have married her. She would not have even caught his eye because those things are, you know, physical embodiments of witchcraft. And there wouldn't have been any way that Henry would have gotten together with her. So no. Um, uh, Anne apparently also during her trial defended herself beautifully. And, uh, you know, it was possible that had the jury not been stacked basically, because it was a foregone conclusion that Anne was going to be executed because by, uh, I don't remember which historian wrote about this, but it just blew my mind when I read it. Um, Anne's executioner came from Calais, which is in France. Well, at the time, technically, it was England, uh, but it was right next to France on the continent, and it became part of France not much after. Um, but the swordsman came from Calais, and he was giving Anne this, you know, very noble uh, execution. But for the amount of time it would have taken for the swordsman to get to England from Calais... Uh, he would have had to have sent for the swordsman during the trial. 
And because sometimes those journeys, even when you're coming from a port that's close by, the channel is nefariously difficult to navigate. And so the executioner would have had to been sent for during the trial or before the trial. And so that's a foregone conclusion that Henry wanted Anne gone. And so she defended herself beautifully at her trial and it still wasn't enough. All of the peers voted guilty because that's where you get the, you know, the whole jury of your peers. It was all peers because she was a noblewoman. Uh, at that particular point in time, Henry had uh, tried to strip her titles from her. So she was the Marchioness of Pembroke still. But because Henry had granted that to her in her own right, which is actually a male title and kind of cool. But, um, but so she was, you know, tried by the peers, as in the noble peers of the kingdom. And, you know, they, of course, all voted guilty. And so then she knew that she was going to be executed. Uh, so I am going to read to you the quotes of what we've got for her execution speech and I want to talk a little bit about the tradition of the scaffold speech. Because um, one of the things that uh, was accepted at the time was, you know, anything that was said on the scaffold is going to be God's truth. Because you don't want to go to your death having committed a sin just before it. And usually, hopefully, you have been absolved of your sins. You know, you have unction, you have all of this stuff, that you have your final confession or whatever before you go to the scaffold. And so you're not going to endanger your immortal soul by lying on the scaffold. And you also want to use this, though, to protect the people you love. Because if you start railing against the king or whomever is the one who's in charge of this execution, they're going to probably take revenge on people you love. And so you have to... A lot of these people end up playing this very subtle line of, you know, condemning but not condemning. And... And came to her execution and she went to her execution bravely. Um, apparently she was hysterical the night before, but once she actually did come out, she died nobly. She uh, um, walked up to the scaffold. She had a, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the this book here. She had a red petticoat and she had a gray gown of damask trimmed in fur. And she had her two attendants who then would take out her, take off her outer dress because you don't want to get blood on the, the really beautiful fabrics. Uh, you put your hair up back in a little uh, scarf or bonnet. Uh, then you do your speech. And then usually uh, in England, uh, even if you were a nobleman, you would... If you were a nobleman, you got spared, uh, even like, especially like her brother, his execution was beheading. Now, uh, the reason why he was executed was technically treason. And that's the reason technically why Anne was also executed was that was the biggie of the charges, not just the adultery, but the treason. Henry made it treason to sleep with the Queen of England, unless you were the king, because then you are endangering the succession. Treason. Uh, came with an execution of hanging, drawing, and quartering. Unless you were noble, then it was beheading. 
And so her brother was beheaded and Anne was going to be beheaded as well. But in England, typically how the beheadings worked was you had a block that was you know, just sitting on the scaffold. You bent over it, threw your arms out, and they chop your head off that way. Uh, I talked about the swordsman from Calais. Henry did her, I guess, a service of making sure that he got a pro from Calais to make it as painless as possible and to be able to have her executed as befitted a noblewoman or queen as she had been uh, by instead of kneeling and bending over, uh, she was just kneeling straight up on her knees. So she was upright uh, when she was executed and her head was taken. But anyway... Before all that happened, we have her uh, ladies taking off her gown, her outer gowns. We have her uh, paying the, because they always have to pay the executioner as well. And you go through the whole thing like, I forgive you for what you have to do, etc., etc. And then her short speech, though, was, Good Christian people, I am come hither to die, for according to the law, and by the law I am judged to die, and therefore I will speak nothing against it. I am come hither to accuse no man, nor to speak anything of that whereof I am accused or condemned to die. But I pray God, save the king, and send him long to reign over you, for a gentler nor a more merciful prince there was never. And to me he was ever a good, a gentle, and sovereign lord. And if any person will meddle of my cause, I require them to judge the best. And thus I take my leave of the world and of you all, and I heartily desire you all to pray for me. O Lord, have mercy on me. To God I commend my soul. And then she knelt, and the swordsman took off her head in one swipe. Luckily for her, other people weren't so lucky. Like Thomas Cromwell when he's eventually executed. The Axeman had problems. And so then that's the end of Anne's life. Um... Her legacy was the Reformed Church, although Henry does kind of flip-flop back and forth to more Catholic beliefs and less Catholic beliefs over the rest of his reign. And, of course, her daughter Elizabeth eventually becoming queen in 1558. And in some ways, what's interesting is the fact that even though we have a decent amount of... uh, you know, historical work and documentation on her, no one really knows who Anne Boleyn really was. Was she this temptress and seduction woman? Was she this party girl? Was she a proto-feminist? Was she, you know, this virtuous and kind woman? All of the above? None of the above? Uh, She, the real Anne Boleyn, is so elusive. And I think that that's one of the reasons why people are still utterly fascinated by her. Yes, she supplanted Catherine of Aragon, but then she also did her best to be a good queen. And so how do you reconcile these things? And so Anne Boleyn is such an elusive figure. And also she had a very tragic end. There was no way going into it that she ever would have thought that Henry was going to have her executed. And that's why I wonder why any of Henry's other wives got into it. Because then it's a possibility, and why would you do that to yourself? But that's a story for another time. And because this podcast is already super freaking long, 
I think we're going to stop it there for today. And then in the next cast, we're going to talk about Jane Seymour, died, Anna of Cleves, divorced, Catherine Howard, uh, beheaded, and Catherine Parr, survived. So for now, I bid you adieu. Stay tuned, stay well, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Courtney for History Pop, signing off. It's been a pleasure. Take care. This has been written and performed by Courtney Herbert. Intro and outro music written and performed by Jonathan Colton and used under a Creative Commons license. This has been a turtle.